you're about to experience a new way to thrive in martial arts by exploring who you are, what you love, and standing up for what you believe in. It's time to rise, because this is where we challenge and say no to outdated industry norms and say yes to change, so that we create a healthier, happier, and thriving martial arts community. I'm your host, Laurine Zuhake. Welcome to the Rise to Thrive podcast. Today it's about breaking cycles of violence. I have the honor to speak with Jennifer Moore, also known from the Well of Sound, and DJ Frequency. She's a former caporista, multidisciplinary artist born and raised in the Northwest, Seattle, Washington. The Well of Sound is a sonic meditation practice in which Jen offers group and individual sessions aimed at calming the nervous system into the present moment. She practices liberation for process and believes sharing to be an integral part of growth and healing. Love as modality is necessary. Love is all there is. So long as we have the courage to give and receive. In this episode, we dive deep into how Jen left a capoeira cult, how she recognized that it was a cult, the impact it had and has on her, and on how to deal and to heal once you leave. Hello, Jen. Welcome, welcome to the Rise to Thrive podcast. I'm very pleased to have you on. Please, to our listeners, introduce yourself. Hi, my name is Jennifer Moore, and I am an artist and musician here in Seattle, Washington. And uh, what was your role in martial arts? Because it's a martial arts kind of podcast, and uh, you know, I know that you also practiced one. I am a capoeirista uh, for the uh, Capoeira Angola tradition. And I trained for a number of years um, here in Seattle and a couple of other places. I was introduced to Capoeira while traveling in South Africa, and I had my first exposure there. And a few years later, I came home and began training at home. All right. And uh, what you confided in me last time was that you, um, are you still practicing or did you stop? Not with a school. I don't practice with a school, no. All right. So you practice solo. So what made you leave? I got to a point where the environment no longer could support healthy training and practicing. And as I grew as a person, as a woman, I could no longer be within the toxicity that was really aimed, not aimed, uh, everyone felt it, but it, I think, had a very particular effect on the women in the group. I think sometimes it takes a long time, depending on your background, to understand and to see toxicity and violence for what it is. And so it's, you know it immediately, but there's a part of you that just wants to cover, cover, cover and not really have to address it, especially when there's something really precious to you that kind of hangs in the balance of that. And for me, it was capoeira. I fell madly in love with the art and the thought of not training was just horrendous to me. And so even though I recognized in some part of myself what was happening my own histories with violence and domestic violence, you just kind of are able to go into the space in your brain that says, nothing's wrong, I don't see anything. And so when I finally realized that I could no longer exist in that state and be healthy and also respect the art itself, I had to go. Yeah, I think it's indeed so hard because if you love the art and for sure you made also good connections in that community, it's so hard to leave because not everything is bad. 
No, not at all. And I, one thing uh, with Capoeira, I know it's the only martial art I've trained, but I imagine other martial arts have a similar um, capacity is that it becomes your community in a very intense way. And so even when you're not training, you're doing things with people in the community, you're planning events together, you're hanging out together. And so leaving the art doesn't just mean leaving the school or not training with the school anymore. It really can be um, kind of an uh, excommunication from community, especially if other people are still within kind of more of the um, kind of beyond community, but into the cultish side of the the art or whatever the thing is. Yeah. Did you also have like friends outside of the art? Because I know that some kind of everything is in that community. So when they indeed, as you say, leave, they kind of have no one anymore. Yeah. Was it similar for you or? You know, I did have friends outside of the art, thank goodness. And I had a partner at the time that wasn't involved in the art, um, which made that transition different than for people who don't have that or who maybe whose partners are also a part of the art. Um, because when I finally realized that I had to go, there were a number of people who didn't question that and... Mm -hmm understood even better than I did why it was time to leave. And they had been able to see the things happening and kind of growing through the years. And so I was very fortunate to have more community to land in um, outside of Capoeira. But I definitely witnessed other people who didn't have that to the same degree. And a lot of them stayed for longer than they wanted or leaving was a different kind of um It was a different kind of experience. There was a different kind of isolation that happened afterwards. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because studies also show that like when you're in a cold, that also it starts to affect the neural connections even in your brain, that the vertical and horizontal connections kind of get inhibited or even up to a point disconnected, meaning critical thinking and expressing. So when you witness something that normally in any other context, you would be like, that is totally not okay, or it would make you feel sad. Um, you stop feeling these emotions and indeed to challenge authority and to think critically that, hey, maybe this is not okay. So many that go out of a cult, especially when they were very long, very deep in it, when they get out, they find it very hard to kind of um, start to think critically again uh, and feel, to dare to feel certain emotions again when they don't like something that happened either to them or something that they witness, as well as this responsibility and, and accountability. Did you witness or notice something in yourself and others as well? Absolutely. It took years um, after leaving to really kind of filter everything through a more healthy lens of understanding. There was a particular time while I was still training and we were doing a demo and I was asked to be the person, the student in the demo. And um, without warning, as an example of how tough Capoeira girls were in my teacher's mind, he turned around and he punched me in the stomach. And right before, you know, his fist hit my stomach, I like a split second was able to kind of clench my muscles. And, you know, I was very fit at the time. So I was able to take it, not fall over, but it knocked the wind out of me. And I'd never been punched in the stomach before. And people kind of paused for a sec. And even in the moment, I looked at him and I said, you're never to do that again. But that's the kind of thing where you, 
you absolutely leave a situation like that. A warning is not what you give someone, you just leave. It took me a very long time to understand the sickness of what that was and the absolute abuse that it was and the kind of testing it was, not of my strength, but of my willingness to submit to violence and toxicity and to do it in front of people. And I was kind of posited as an exemplary student in my time while I was training. And so it was meant to not only see what I would take, it was to show others that the height or the pinnacle of being a good student in training is this person who is here willing to take this abuse. And so there were other moments like that, but that's one that stands out in my mind of looking from the outside. If I'd seen that happen to anyone else, I would have been the one to tell them, you need to leave immediately. This person needs to be held accountable to what was done. Um, But it took a very long time to understand different moments like that and how I was used and allowed myself to be used throughout my training process. As this example of I don't want to call myself a victim. I don't see it like that. But I think for people who victimize, I was kind of used at different points as the perfect example of what he would say was a student, but really it was the perfect example of a victim. Yeah, I think, like, first of all, I'm so very sorry this happened to you. And also on stage, like, it's even harder to leave because all these eyeballs are on you as well. Like, I cannot imagine all the emotions that must all go through you as you were demoing at the same time and um, getting hit. As you say, like it is just need a way of to enforce dominance in this power imbalance and indeed to set a standard to show to everyone like, oh, this is this is normal. Mm -hmm. And also if then say this person would do this to the next student that and the other student saw that it was done to you, that they're like, ah, so that is just normal. That's how we train here. And I think that's just like how it becomes more and more normalized. And that if you don't want it, that you're either weak or you're not cut out for it or you don't want it enough. And then you get these these ultra toxic narratives and, and ideas planted. So I can, I'm happy that you're out. Absolutely. You know, I have, as many people do, I have a history of domestic violence in my life and different family system issues. And so I think a part of what was familiar about training was that, and it took me a very long time also to see that, that I kind of fell into another community that mirrored my family community to a degree. And so there were things that at that point in time, I had not understood were toxic about my upbringing and because they were modeled inside of this space the familiarity was almost comforting for lack of a better word and that ability to kind of say even what i just saw and experienced didn't actually happen i was already very well trained in that response and so mm-hmm. leaving the school became more than leaving the school. It was breaking away, like you're saying, from particular neural connections that had developed and saying, I know that my brain wants to go one way, Mm -hmm. but I'm having to actually train it into a different mode of being that goes beyond just the school. But the school became this, this like this model of all of these happenings in my life in this one concentrated space. And so it's, You know, and that's a part of the it took years after leaving to fully understand what I had gotten myself into and what the addiction felt like while I was training. And after I left, even though I didn't 
continue training, the pull to train was so strong um, to the point where like on Sundays, which were our main day to have our capoeira circle, which is called a hoda, I would just find myself in my apartment training like noon on Sunday. It was just like the muscle memory in my body. So it was, it's, it's taken a long time um, to understand that there's a difference between where you train and who you train with and your actual interaction with the art itself and your relationship to it, which is yours. It's not anyone else's. Yeah, that's a very important point that you make because also, for instance, in the, the jiu-jitsu, like what we train, I remember myself when I was really training what, nine times a week. Um, if I couldn't make it for whatever, I already trained once that day, yeah? Like I already trained, but I could not because mm. whatever, it was a, a birthday or I was in academia, there was a conference or something had to go, mm. you know? And I felt like this, this FOMO was real, like this fear of missing out was so real. And I felt like it was like, Actually, this was so that I felt so guilty, was so self-sabotaging, really, because it's totally weird. And also when I would then sometimes write, like, yeah, I cannot come, whatever, like, especially when you get like, oh, why not? Or like to our students right now, when they say, oh, and I sense, you know, that they really want to come and all that. And I was like, don't worry, you know, it's life is more than just a martial art. Like, enjoy yourself. Like the word we had a student, he couldn't come because he participated in in a movie or something and there was like a party i'm like of course go there like that's a once maybe once in a lifetime thing and training is literally in our case six times a week so you know take your pick so i can totally see that it's not only like the mind but indeed when you practice for so long also the body that the body just wants it needs it feels it which in some ways can be a positive thing so you just get your workouts in but indeed in this instance can be also very toxic so that's very hard, hard work on your part to just cut through it because basically it was just more than just the martial art, as you say. Also your upbringing, like to, to cut through that, that's just so hard and you need to be so aware, otherwise you cannot do it. It's very true and you, and you definitely need that support. And I think, you know, in addition to kind of being drawn to the dynamic of, you know, uh, there's a very powerful person, there's a leader at the top of the system and everyone has their roles. There is the aspect of, because it's more than just training, it is celebrating birthdays together. It is people maybe recognizing you in areas or ways mm -hmm. of your life that you haven't been before. And so it becomes very um, alluring and enticing the community that's there because it is this kind of, um, you know, there's an aspect of feeling seen for the first time when a whole group of people gather together on your birthday to play you and to give you food and give you a cake. That's a, that's a really nice thing. And so you start to realize that it's not, okay, we're getting together for birthdays and we're training. And then it's, um, you know, we're teaching or we're hanging out together. And then it's maybe, can you handle an aspect of the business for the person? Mm -hmm. Then it's, can you recruit? And you start to see that um, you, you are being guilted for any area of your life where you attempt to maintain boundaries and sovereignty. And it's under the guise of, what we are supposed to give to the art because the art gives so much to us, which it does. Mm -hmm. um, but it's very, I think of um, different religions throughout the world where like, you know, there's a notion that you go through a person to get to that higher spiritual realm. And that's what it started to feel like was it wasn't for the art. It was all for the teacher and that we were supposed to be so grateful to this teacher for the way that he is changing our lives, exposing us to this art, 
um, that you're supposed to give and give without question. And to question is to disrespect the art itself. And at times this is stated explicitly, but more often than not, it's not stated explicitly. It's the treatment you get when you don't follow the rules and Mm -hmm. other folks. um, And I was one of them at one point who, when you're definitely more in that brainwash system, you are kind of used as a buffer for other people who may have better boundaries, who are able to say no. And maybe you're the person that's asked to call them or text them um, because they may be more receptive to you to give the invite to say you're going to pick someone up or to, in your own way, guilt someone into being present. And I think about that and I'm so grateful to the people who came through the school who quickly saw what it was. They had really good boundaries because even though I didn't leave when they left, they were these examples when it was time for me to leave that I wasn't crazy. I hadn't lost my mind. This was in fact more off kilter than I had realized the whole time and Mm -hmm. their ability to set healthy boundaries and then go live the rest of their life without carrying this residual guilt was really helpful in staying away and working on that healing because there were people who just were not unclear about what was going on. And when you've dealt with systems and histories of violence, violence is very scrambling to the brain. It can feel very challenging to trust your inner instinct. And so it's so important to have people around you who don't struggle with that because it makes it makes it very clear. And then I think it can be tough for people who don't understand that mm. to see how hard it is for people who struggle with boundaries. Um, it's not clear in the least to us in a certain sense. And what we're talking about, like with the body, what happens physically can be really overwhelming. The way that the nervous system reacts to setting your own boundaries can feel like terror inside of the body. And so having people who can hold that space for you as these feelings come up, as your own doubt comes up, is really important. There's a lot to uncover, just like all the things that you said. I also think what I want to start here is that you said, when it was my time to go, because I, I know with these things, it's it's like leaving an abusive relationship. Like it's hard to leave. It takes mm-hmm. time to leave. And maybe sometimes you come back and it takes a few times before you go like for real. Um, I think that's also very important also to give yourself some grace and also maybe some listeners that may be like, hey, this describes me. I mean, it's never easy, but it's definitely easier when you know like this is your time to go. Because I also know some stories of people, they kind of saw it, they kind of knew it and then kind of left, but they, it was not real, so to speak, kind of. So they came back and it was kind of a pendulum back and forth until they could make this final cut. Right. So I also think it's very important that even when people are kind of screaming at you, like, it's a cult and all that. Um, I think people have to understand, especially those, as you say, that have healthy boundaries and can enforce them well. It is a process, um, and especially, and that's one thing that I really want to also reiterate, is that people that have been exposed to violence, any kind of violence, as you say, the nerve system is a little bit mixed up. Like it takes time for it to kind of get back into healthy patterns of functioning, which means that when also, whether you want to call it a victim or not, but when somebody who has been abused or comes out of an abusive relationship, whether that's in a cult or romantically, you cannot expect them to function fully immediately. And that is, I think, what people often forget that then sometimes these people maybe, I wouldn't even say 
that they behave weird or whatever, but you have to get used to this freedom. You have to get used to mm-hmm. having to make your own decisions that you're not told what to do, what to think, what is okay, that you kind of have to refigure out your own core values. And that takes time. And I've seen that sometimes, actually lately there was, you know, Britney Spears was again in the in the news about the fact that ever since that she kind of was liberated, um, that people say, oh, she behaves weird and this and that. And I'm like, what do you expect? Mm. Like, what do you expect? Like when you have mm. been basically caged for such a long time, first of all, you need to dare to come out of this cage. I mean, more often than not, I mean, you mm. see this with animals too, and they're caged long enough, you open it, they don't even dare venture out. So once they mm-hmm. venture out, it is so overwhelming and it just takes time to figure out yourself, basically, because you lose parts of who you are when you are in a cult or in any toxic situation or environment. And I think it's just so important for people to realize that when people come out, and especially when you haven't experienced yourself, give them time. They will pend a little bit, maybe sometimes a bit to extremes because you have to re, how do you say this? refigure yourself, refine yourself. Mm-hmm. recalibrate yeah that's the word yeah a, a total recalibration and i think a part of what can be so liberating and shattering at the same time is that it illuminates other parts of your life where there is another dynamic that's mirroring this and so initially when i left and i did go back like two times for short stints maybe like a month or two at a time over the next like year to year and a half after I had my big takeoff. And a part of why I, when I got to that moment that said, I know that now is my time, still in my mind, I didn't think it was about my experience with the violence and toxicity. It was another dear, dear friend who is still a friend um, who also trained and what she was going through in the school. There was a very real, um, not just threat of violence, there was actual violence going on. And when I found that out, it was this immediate ability to say, oh no, I have, I have to go now. I can't be a person or a woman or a student, a capoeirista, because I took it very seriously. I had a lot of respect for the art. And I said, this is disrespecting another human being and the art itself. And I can't not hear what I heard and see what I saw. And so that allowed me initially to step away. It really wasn't an understanding of why I was interfacing in the first place. And so going back, again, I didn't even see it at the time as a part of that cycle of violence, of that you have this pullback. Mm -hmm. I just thought, well, you know, one, the person, my friend, she went back a number of times and I thought, well, if she's okay with the, you know, the environment and maybe they've healed something, just a very naive understanding of how these systems work, that change does not happen quickly, if at all. And so that wanting to go back was a really, really deep desire of wanting to believe not only about that school, but about my history, that maybe the people in my past that um, I had dealt with this already, maybe there was change, maybe there was an ability for me to have certain relationships after giving it space. And what I noticed in going back was not that, not only that it persisted, it was that whatever kind of magical bubble or spell I had been under, it had truly been broken. And what I was experiencing was just residual. And so mm-hmm. I didn't have that same spark when I would go back. I wasn't able to see the beauty of the community anymore. I wasn't able to 
feel energized by the movement and by the training. It was just this kind of beating of a drum of a reality of what it was in that place. And it took me two times of trying to go back Mm -hmm. to see that, that once you come out of delusion in a certain way, there's ways you can't go back into it. And you start to understand the cost to the body and to the mind in a different way. And so in my ability to notice how I felt, how much I had to shut parts of myself off to be there, I was more cognizant of that. And so, you know, this is again, this is different from say a relationship with a romantic partner where maybe the stakes are higher, the threat is a lot higher. So I wouldn't say everyone would be grateful for being able to go back and see, but I was grateful Mm -hmm to be able to go back to the community and very clearly see for myself why I had to go and not just for anyone else, but because I was actually the person interfacing with the violence and I hadn't understood it to that degree before. Yeah, I think sometimes indeed you have to, you know, go back, so to speak, to see it for really for what it is. Because mm-hmm. maybe sometimes, you know, I think we humans tend to like, when you're away, start to kind of romanticize things in our minds. Mm-hmm that sometimes things look like better or more positive than they were, because obviously there were good times too, right? And that's also fine. But often that starts to also cloud our judgment that even though there were good times, um, doesn't mean it is a safe or a healthy space. Right. And understanding and having met different teachers and different men who were the teachers of my teacher and seeing that really deep cycle of toxicity that's passed through people. So I want to say through the generations, even though these people weren't related, it was generations of men who were not only teaching the art in a particular way, were teaching what they thought of as life skills in a particular way. And so I saw the kind of top down of, how do I say this? There was no male leadership around my teacher that was going to intercept with what was going on because they were in fact the ones who were helping to perpetuate it. That understanding also made it easier to go that these other people that I had also trained with, developed relationships with, Mm -hmm. they were the example and the kind of isolation of being a woman in that system was very intense. It felt like all of the kind of bad parts of a romantic relationship without the actual romance with the person. And that also in my brain didn't make sense of how can Mm -hmm. you be so tied to a place, to a person and to a system. And it's not family. It's not a blood tie. It's not a partnership or romantic tie. And there was a lot of shame I had around that for a while that I felt weak in that fact that like, this is just a a friend or a person you knew that was able to kind of be this way and do these things around you. And when I started, that's a part of what allowed me to start understanding my own history with it in terms of my family, my father, the different roles that we had, and that the attraction was always from that place of it's like a moth to a flame or like magnets. When you have that in your history and you haven't been able to address it or heal it, those are the very people that you will surround yourself with. And so um, just the revelations that come, they can be really heavy. And like you're saying, just that ability to have grace and compassion with yourself because they are a part of your growth as wretched as it can feel to start to see what 
you've been put through and what you've also allowed as you begin to kind of untwist the mind, um, some disturbing things can come up. Yeah, I think this point you make also, it's not family. Like, this is really one of the stoppos that is used in the martial arts world, and also particularly in the jiu-jitsu world, saying like, oh, you know, the team, it's your family. And I'm like, no, it's not. And it shouldn't, because I am paying you to teach me a martial art. And we forget this, right? I'm like, I'm paying you. Like, am I still family when I would just stop paying you, but I still come every day? I don't think so. Right. And I think sometimes we need to make it super simple. Because the moment you have these kind of gray area relationships with people, it gets so blurry. I really say like our team, we are a team, but we're not a family. Mm -hmm. Because how often our family is completely dysfunctional. <laughs> I mean, in that regard, if a martial arts community is a cult, comparing it with a dysfunctional family is a very apt description. But um, but for me, I'm like, no, it's not a family. Doesn't mean you get the cold shoulder or anything. Not at all. We are a team. We work together mm -hmm. so we can achieve the goals that we set out for ourselves. And me as a coach, when I learn about your goals, I try to, or I do my best to um, put my effort in, in you, invest in you, and you invest in too. And that's how we reach something, whatever it is. You work as a team. But that is really how far it goes. Of course, people tell us sometimes things or they had a rough day or all that. But that you can also do in a team. I mean, also at work, sometimes you will also say something personal. But again, it's not family. You don't owe them anything because there is this tie. So sometimes I'm really like, do you pay for the service? Yes. Okay. Then they have absolutely no jurisdiction on your life whatsoever. And it's, I mean, easier said than done. But I do, I try to repeat and repeat this at the moment you realize somebody wants you to do some work for them unpaid because it's an honor or whatever, because I don't know, assistant coach or something like that. Um, like we have these things, like when we have some that assistants, there are teenagers that help us, they get paid or they get some, you know, a rush guard, they get some gear, but they get paid in some sort of form because yes, I think it's a good experience for them and all that, but I just don't want necessarily, they invest their time too. And although I know they learn a lot, I just, I don't like this thing that you should do this because it's humble and uh, it's good for the, for the martial art and all that. I just don't like that. And another thing, what you also said was like with this punch that you're like, yeah, I could handle it. And that is something that I have really thought about a lot recently that I thought just because you can handle it, doesn't make it okay. Just because you can handle it, that people step-by-step step try to go over your boundaries or Lately, now in the Muay Thai world, there was this video where a high-level female athlete during rounds, her coach slapped her basically on the stool and also grabbed her here by the throat, trying to kind of motivate her. Um, so yeah, we were saying like, but this is physical abuse. <laughs> like, I mean, I know some athletes that want a kind of a slap before they start a match. Um, sometimes I think, do they want this? Because indeed, is there some family history? some history where that kind of wakes them up. I always wonder like whether there's something behind that, but um, then again, I'm not a psychologist. So that's like also me thinking out loud. But during a match, I mean, especially Muay Thai, you probably already got, got some hits to the face with but knees, elbows, fists, uh, feet. And then you get that. And there I'm also like, they spin this narrative that if you're not tough, then you're not cut out for this sport. But I'm like, 
just because you're tough doesn't mean you have to accept this because it would actually be tougher when you hold your boundaries and say, I do not want to be treated like that because that's the more difficult thing to do than to accept when this famous coach hits you. I was in the video, you saw like both corners and the other, her opponent, she didn't get slapped by her coach. And she's also high level practitioner, otherwise she wouldn't be in this promotion. And what I found so fascinating is how they spin this this narrative like, yeah, well, if you cannot handle this, or if you uh, take offense and you're either a snowflake or pardon me for the word pussy or something like that, even though I'm like, yeah, but the evidence is literally in the same video that you can also thrive without all this. You can also be a badass, highly appreciate, effective mm-hmm. um, athlete without all that. And I also realized that some of the other coaches that were like, or fighters that are also very successful, that they're like, yeah, this is the way to go. But then I'm like, okay, but just because probably you got hit as well, but you said also this kind of generational history doesn't mean you have to pass it on. And I also think that the reason that they are so defensive about it is that when they start to realize that it is indeed not a prerequisite for becoming a champion or successful that they suffered Mm -hmm. in vain. And I think that that is very uncomfortable and very scary. And they don't dare yet to venture inside to see like, oh my God, what kind of damage, what did it do to me? Absolutely. That part is so huge in and outside of the martial arts world with um, other folks who have experienced violence and are kind of teetering in that place of being unhealed in a way that the only way to justify what they've been through and to reconcile it in their body is to perpetuate it. And I don't say that with judgment. I think these are extremely hard cycles to break. And definitely that experience was there. And one thing that you talked about that really sparked something in me was remembering at the time that I was training, I was also teaching, not only in the school, I was teaching children in a youth program. And Um, It was a very successful youth program and a part of what I remember expressing in the school was that I was very clear of the fact that I did not thrive or learn in environments that were harsh. Um, I didn't learn from put downs as you know, that's like language we learn as little kids, like no put downs. And because I was teaching, I had an understanding of what people call like my own pedagogy around teaching. And I was young, but it was it was forming at that time. I was in my mid-20s and I was starting to see there's a way that I approach my students as an educator and it's proven itself effective. And I think one thing that happens in very imbalanced power dynamics and really closed communal systems is there is an attempt to rewrite what people know. And it's you, you want to kind of break down what people know or what they mm-hmm. think they know and put this other system in place. And so I think one of the points that actually stayed with me as a through line through my training was this really deep understanding, not just in theory, but in practice, that violence was not necessary. Like you said, it was not a prerequisite for greatness. I was working and training with students who were thriving through compassion and through care and through healthy relating. And so when that model was given, it had always sat at a point of dissonance in my mind as I was training, as I would watch other people take more because my teacher did have certain boundaries with me because I did kind of unbeknownst to myself, 
set certain boundaries early on without realizing that's what I was doing. And so there were ways that he wouldn't interact with me, that he would interact with other students. Mm -hmm. But even my ability to witness it and not leave was still a part of the growth that I had to do. And so that understanding that I told him very early, I don't learn via unnecessary criticism and I don't learn via put downs it kind of held me in this bubble as I trained where he would not say certain things to Mm me um, because he knew how I felt about it. And at the time, that was enough of a boundary for me until it wasn't anymore. But I think that understanding of um, people who may find themselves in situations like this is to understand you're not an empty vessel. You come already with the framework for how you're moving through the world for your own core values. And like you said, understanding your own values is so incredibly important because even if you can't articulate them, the body can. The body will tell you when your boundaries are being crossed. And it's extremely important to listen to it. And again, to have people outside of that system that you can be interfacing with about what's coming up that, you know, are you noticing how you're feeling before when you're on your way to go train or, or join whatever group it is? Are you noticing how you're feeling during training? When you leave, are you experiencing that high or are you kind of feeling that heaviness and that weight? Mm -hmm. And maybe it can be one thing one day and it can be another thing another day. And so just that kind of not even so much a vigilance over the environment, but over your inner environment can tell you so much about what this experience is for you. And I think that's where I've gotten to in my own work with myself in multiple situations is I don't always have to know whether something is right or wrong. I just have to know how I feel about it. And I have to have enough love and compassion for myself to trust that And to, if it's a negative feeling, enough value in myself to want to feel differently and to not try to crap fit myself into a space where I can't actually feel better or feel differently about a situation. And so that was big of no longer trying to manipulate my own mind to calm the body in a space that my body was telling me was not safe for me. Mm -hmm. I think it's huge to kind of also be like, I am worthy of respectful treatment. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes, I mean, I noticed it when I was younger, but in myself, like I noticed, you know, in academia, when I, when my supervisor said, Aya, he wants to talk to you. I immediately thought I did something wrong, even though I didn't do anything. I couldn't think of anything I did wrong. And then when I went there, I got amazing opportunities. It was all positive. It was always like, without that, always positive. And yet every time when somebody's like, I want to talk to you, I immediately kind of have this anxiety thinking that it's going to be like super negative, even though my brain cannot think of what, because I'm like, oh, we didn't see each other for a long time. I mean, I didn't even have time to do anything wrong if I want to. But that's like how my brain goes spinning. It's completely like irrational. Um, But that's like what happens when indeed you sometimes, well, experience like put downs, just bad things. And it kind of becomes a pattern in you that if somebody wants something and you cannot immediately gauge what it is Mm -hmm. that you kind of immediately assume it must be something negative Mm -hmm. which often and and if this time every time it was not it was one amazing opportunity after the other so it was really not and yet 
it was so hard. I mean, after a while, I didn't take my brain seriously anymore. And that's how you kind of step by step, mm -hmm. or at least I took it with a grain of salt and was like, yeah, yeah, let's just hear it out first. I can always later decide if it truly was something, but let's not worry about it now and sleep bad and all that kind of stuff. But before mm -hmm. I got there, it takes a lot of, I mean, luckily I got a lot of practice, but it takes practice and it's, um, and it's hard. And also what you said about a safe learning environment, I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions when it comes to person-centered or trauma-informed coaching, however you want to call it, like you just like train, train the person in front of you, is that some people or many people actually think that when you adopt that approach, you're cuddling the student. And I'm like, no, that's not what you are. You just, you create a safe space so that they can train hard safely that's really what it is that they that they also dare to venture out of their comfort zone if that's needed or that they can go the extra mile that they know that they're supported that they're not judged that they when they fail that that just means learning mm -hmm. when you lose something a match or whatever it's learning that you adopt a growth mindset instead of this fixed mindset because if you are afraid to disappoint the coach the team the so-called family or you feel that you suck when you didn't get it right or that is all fixed mindset because whether you win or lose or learn this new sequence or technique, it doesn't say anything about your person. It just says something about, well, maybe, I don't know, you could only make it once this week and other people made it three times this week. So, okay, maybe they therefore um, learned it a little bit quicker than you because they simply had more meta hours. Um, there are just so many reasons why. And maybe you lost this match because you didn't sleep well, you couldn't prepare well, it just was an off day. But it doesn't mean that you therefore suck, that your technique is not good, that you don't deserve to be there. And I think that is something that gets confused a lot when you adopt this growth mindset type of teaching. And as you say, people thrive because with us, we experiment and play a lot, for instance. And I tell them, like, if you realize that something doesn't work, that's great because that's information. So in grappling context, then you know that you should not do that again. So also, quote unquote, failing gives you so much valuable information and it all helps you with growing instead of, oh, don't do that, that, you know, you suck or this. And I know there are coaches that definitely put others down and yet they don't thrive, mm -hmm. even if they're ultra, quote unquote, talented, whatever. I just believe in the long run, even if they make it, you know, to the highest level with this kind of fixed mindset and negative or even abusive approach, the damage that's done on the long run is a lot and when that starts to pop up on the surface when you cannot ignore it anymore i think that's heartbreaking absolutely and the damage to the self and again that personal relationship that you have with whatever the art is which is so important to cultivate and to really hold close you know whether it's martial arts or not but when we're talking about martial arts it's just such a special area of life and the world and I think one thing that happened when I was training was the kind of surface level of what we were taught about the art, what it is for, what it means, the tenets. I really believed. I believed immediately. And I trained from that place of Capoeira for me was an interface for how I was growing as a human being. And I was very clear about that from early on. It was so much more than just movement. Um, I saw myself through the through learning about the art, becoming a different person that I did like a lot in so many ways. And mm -hmm. I saw myself becoming mentally stronger through the art in ways that kind of fostered that addiction to this space. 
And one of the things that is always prominent in my mind is that anyone who's truly learning martial arts understands that the physical fight, if you will, is meant to be, it's at the other end. It's the very last thing in terms of what the training is supposed to be able to produce in you. So if you're talking about a real life situation where you would need to defend yourself, to me, what I learned was that there's an intelligence of the body, mind, and spirit that should lead you out of that situation before it should transpire to the physical side. But should it not, you also know how to physically handle things. And so I took that to heart in the sense of I'm not just sharpening my muscles, I'm sharpening mm-hmm. my mind, I'm sharpening my heart. And I think I took it more seriously than was expected. I don't know mm-hmm. that my teacher thought um, the students would take that side of it so seriously. And so there was this kind of magical period, like mm-hmm. you're saying, not everything was bad, where because he saw that and saw me really buying into those things, he did for a time train me from that place of this is someone who's trying to cultivate this at a higher level than just the physical. And so that was a part of the kind of cementing of our relationship of at the time, what I thought was respect. But as the patterns began to you know pop up again, I saw that the way that I wanted to train and the really deep love and respect I had for the art couldn't happen in that space. And I felt very protective over the art itself in a way of, I would not be party to anything that, and for those of you who don't know, Capoeira comes from an amazing long tradition, first out of Africa with a modern cultivation in Brazil. So I felt very culturally tied to this art. I felt historically tied. I felt this sense of really deep pride in being able to train something that I felt was in the way of my ancestors. And so that was also a part of what made me not able to stay was that the the disrespect felt deeper than just me. It was like, this is my, this is my lineage. This is my, a part of my history that by staying here, I am not honoring. And so again, that understanding of your personal relationship to anything you're getting involved with is so important because sometimes it isn't just the treatment of us, that's enough. And it's, I think it can be hard to, to swallow that, but it's just true sometimes. And so having these other anchors of understanding of maybe you crossing my physical boundary, if I'm not healed enough, that doesn't do it for me. But when you cross a different kind of boundary within my life, that is when I'm able to say, no, I can't allow for this. And so there's a beauty to the martial arts that in this kind of culture of toxicity that I think is very male driven, but women also participate in it, um, can get so lost and so murky. And so it's like another point of check-in when you have fallen in love with these arts and you are understanding it from a certain place to check in with yourself and say, is this actually what's being cultivated in this space? And from there being able to make different decisions about whether you're going to stay in that space or if you are, how you're going to move through it. These are very helpful pointers. I think um, it's always good every now and then to pause and to just indeed ask yourself those questions because then you also can feel because the problem indeed in, in cults is that you stop feeling these things. And that is so important to keep that connection 
at least intact enough that it's not interrupted, basically, when you get feedback from your spirit, your body, wherever it's residing, and that you indeed are like, okay, this is like not okay. Especially in martial arts, there's this paradox or dilemma because it's a martial art, and often people think that it's inextricably connected to being, you know, strong, badass, maybe also wise, calm. Mm-hmm. There, 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 usually there are just like these these philosophical parts of it. But therefore, I think it's for people also very hard to accept that maybe they were victimized, whether they mm. see themselves as a victim or not. But like that, they maybe they that to accept that you have been abused that they were abusive to you can really lead to some serious cognitive dissonance when you're like, especially at the higher levels, when you're actually a super effective, successful fighter, it can imagine that it's very hard when you're like, wow, so when I enter the ring or the cage or the mats or whatever, I basically beat most and I'm good in the physical part of the art, just say. But when it comes to the other part of cultivating what martial arts also often stand for is like mental resilience, I wouldn't even call toughness, but just resilience. Um, mm-hmm. There we come into this super, this paradox and this dilemma that many don't and that they don't want to have this conversation with themselves because it's too hard because many will probably think maybe then they're not tough, badass fighters. Whereas I'm like, you are, but there's a difference between being physically tough or resilient rather and mentally resilient where you're like, mm-mm. Not today or not anymore. And I think that can, you know, it's challenging at any level, but I I think especially for folks such as yourself or other people who have when your life becomes this training, and maybe there's people who don't have day jobs anymore, that their whole, you know, um mm-hmm. focus in life has gone towards the art, that that moment um of revelation that you can no longer turn away from can be utterly devastating and it's like a crossroads of do i allow myself to see it and then see every other example that i've been blind to or do i stay in this dissonance in order to if you're financially tied to the art or or just ego tied to the art whether your heart is tied whatever it may Mm -hmm. be that there's a lot that can hang in the balance that again people outside of the art outside of martial arts or outside of whatever the cultish factor is, will look at you crazy sometimes. Like, what's the big mm-hmm. deal? Just stop training, stop going or switch schools, whatever it may be. And it can be hard to deal with that and hard to deal with your own desire to not kind of watch that all crumble, essentially. And that formation of identity, which can become so strong in these spaces that where before maybe you had other interests, you did other things, you look up one day and your whole identity is this thing, which isn't always the most awful thing. You know, I think about when I was training a lot and there I got to a place where people in my community knew me as a capoeirista before anything else. And I had a really deep sense of pride around that, that I had this beautiful art and I was known for training and I trained hard and I trained well. And there was a lot of shame that was induced when you do start to understand what is happening inside of the system and to you that, again, this feeling of, well, how could I let this happen to myself? So in order to not feel that shame, I have to pretend to not see what this is. And there was a long period after leaving, um, especially in relation to like my partner at the time around a really deep sense of guilt and shame that 
I had let it overtake my life to the degree where I saw in my partner and how he spoke with me and in his eyes, really, that it had had an effect on our relationship that I hadn't realized because my allegiance, my loyalty to a very extreme degree was to this other space in a way that I think at one point, as Mm -hmm. it was building me, made me better in relationship. But when it tipped that line of becoming something very toxic, it was really taking away from that primary, um, beautiful other relationship Mm -hmm. in my life. And so there is a lot, like you're saying, that is at stake. There's a lot that we, um, there's just a lot that we feel we can lose in a sense in the revelation. And again, not just in martial arts, but in any area of your life where you're having to see what has been covered and hopefully be in a safe enough space within yourself and your life that what will come up can be held and that there can be some kind of language that can be put to it. Mm-hmm. Um, because when there isn't, it can, it can, can be a lot. Yeah. I think like the first, like regarding the shame, this is like the thing, like I remember I'm usually direct when people see me as confident and all that doesn't mean that I feel that way, but that's how I'm perceived. And I remember saying that when I once also was in a toxic relationship um, and then also when later when we just left the cult, uh, my husband and I, people were like, how could this happen to you? Because you set your boundaries, which was true, right? But normally in day life, if strangers you just meet, they don't love bomb me. They don't make me feel seen and all those things. Like that's also the thing I think, of course, like it grows on you like step by step. Mm-hmm. Whereas these typical kind of hidden run encounters, so to speak, you have, it's so much easier there to also enforce your boundaries because it's very clear you have no attachment to these people whatsoever. Um, that's why also... As one of my criticisms to self-defense course, often it's about what happens on the street with these hit and run strangers, whereas most abuse, physical, mental, or emotional, it happens usually with people you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And, and that, that makes it so much harder because some say like, yeah, you know, I will just scratch the eyes out. Will you scratch your eyes out of somebody, I don't know, an uncle or a stepdad or, I don't, you know, it's not so easy. And then also when you're much younger or weaker, like it's it's a big deal. And I think we need a bit this nuanced view that shame, um, that it's that when people say that, they just don't get it. You know, they don't see the big picture where I also realized because I felt shame there and was really annoyed and felt like I failed myself, really. Um, but there I also really realized that I have to give myself some grace and compassion that when you're in there and you're sucked in there step by step and they kind of also step by step cut you up to pieces, like that, that you don't even have really connection with who you are, with yourself. It's very hard. And as you say, the moment that you realize that and shame pops up, there are more or less, I mean, there are many options, but the two common ones is either denial mm-hmm. or you indeed are like, no, I see it now. It cannot be unseen. And usually in the end, it will end up in the second one, I think, because there's only so much that you can take. And the second one, what I wanted to say was indeed my, I mean, I have also very, very good friends within the community, but I have also very good friends outside. And that is so helpful because I realized when I was training a lot and I would tell them things when they were like, you accept that? That's really weird. And when I realized that when I sometimes got defensive about it, I was saying, why am I defensive about it? Mm -hmm. Because they have absolutely, they had no reason to prevent me from going there or anything. They were absolutely neutral in it. But they could sing you much better because they were completely neutral, actually, in that regard. 
And I learned that when I tell things or when I'm unsure about something, I tell them that and see what they say. Because for them, sometimes for the outside person, it's so much easier to get a grasp for what's going on than when you're right in it. So I can always really recommend. And especially I know that often, I don't know how it's in, in the capoeira um, context, within I know the grappling and I think Muay Thai too, that many people lose non-martial arty friends. Yeah. Because of course I train a lot. You have this community, you do things together. And at first I thought, yeah, you know, maybe just grow apart and all this kind of thing. But lately I've been kind of rethinking. I mean, for sure, sometimes you just lose people because you just go different ways and that's totally fine. But I also think that sometimes I lost really good people simply because I didn't listen to what they said or I felt that they somehow wanted me to prevent from doing something or as if they wanted me to be unsuccessful, which was really not true. I think it was quite the opposite. Right. So now I'm also, I, I say to these people and also to my close friends within the community, I say to them, if I somehow say my gym really starts to produce champions and, you know, we go all high, I said, if my husband and I, if we start doing some crazy, culty, toxic shit, call us out. The moment you realize that we do something that is just a little bit like weird or odd, do talk to us. Because I think indeed, as you say, when you don't have a day job anymore and you basically are not held accountable anymore and everybody is kind of kowtowing for it to you and saying how amazing you are and whatever, you, you, your, your sense of self also gets completely shifted and people may think that they are greater than they are. So I make sure I have this, what I call my mastermind, where I have really good people who also dare to just tell me directly in my face when they think I messed up mm -hmm. and may sting and I may be mad, but I also know they have my best interests at heart. So that's like how you have people helping you also to hold yourself accountable and, you know, grow from there and become a better version of yourself instead of a worse one. Absolutely. Yeah. That outside influence is really important. And there was something you mentioned, I don't want to lose it here. Just around two things, um, the seriousness sometimes of the power imbalance, I don't want to make light of what it can mean to leave certain toxic culture systems is, you know, isolation is its own kind of uh, hell in a sense, but it is different from... Um, when people or a group may go out of their way to isolate or if there is the potential for any kind of danger or violence when leaving, which again may sound odd to people who are looking at this like it's a group, you're free to join, you're free to leave, um, that sometimes what can stand on the other side of abusive relationships and people not wanting to leave is the very real threat of being cut off from community, which is to be cut off from resources, um, whether that resource be the ability to relate with other people, the ability to work in certain fields, to earn money, to take care of yourself because things are being said about you um, that may be true or untrue. But there is a level of when you really start to understand these cycles of violence and how hard they are to break a part of that can be what feels like and can be a very real threat. And again, that importance of having people outside of that system that you can land with, because there can be fallout from leaving beyond just what comes up inside of you. And that's very real. And I just want to honor that for people who may have may be going through that, may be afraid of that, or who have gone through that to degrees where they still don't feel safe to talk about 
just what was the cost of leaving and stepping away from these systems. Um, and another thing being mm-hmm. to the point again of, as you know, no teacher, no person is perfect. And we aim in life, we, we learn, we try, but we don't always model to the highest degree even our own values. And that's a normal human experience. But when there's too much contrast between what is being said and what is being done. And so I think anytime you find yourself in a space where you're allowing someone to teach you, which that student teacher relationship is two ways. It's not just that you teach me, it's that I allow you to teach me. And there is a deep degree of respect in that. So I show up as a student in this vulnerability of I'm going to put this trust in you and I'm going to allow you to teach me. And in return, I will be a good student, not in the sense of doing everything perfectly, but that Mm -hmm. I'll bring my full self to this situation because I know it's safe. And so when you're in that kind of really what can be beautiful dynamic, one thing I noticed with my school was that what would be said and done outside of training was horridly different from what would be happening at times inside of the school in terms Mm -hmm. of this is not a person that I would be um, spending time with. This is not someone that if it wasn't in the context of this training, I would be interacting with. Um, A big thing for me was bodies. There would be body shaming. So if someone came in that had Mm -hmm. a body that was considered not fit or not acceptable in some way, that body would be talked about. And as I saw that happening more and more as someone who's worked a lifetime to come to a space of love for their body, it was like, it kind of made me short circuit. Like, how dare you allow Mm -hmm. a student to come here and give this vulnerability training takes your whole body. Like you, you have to be fully present and to not have the body be respected in that way was also one of the major parts of leaving was that. I knew when a certain person would walk in that this is already not a safe space for them because they're in Mm -hmm. a body that's seen as unacceptable. And so, again, just to that point of um, is your teacher in their own life, not to perfection, but in a way that you can discernibly see and feel and experience living the values that they're talking about as you're training. And it's not a judgment call so much as again, do you see that effort being made, even if there are missteps and mistakes like we all make? And when that answer is no, being able to honestly sit with that and see that, that I wouldn't want to walk into a space where I knew that my body as a woman, if, mm-hmm. if someone felt there was too much fat on it, if they had a problem with my skin or my hair, to walk into a space and know that you're not safe in that way, I think is a very, um, it's inhumane. I think it's inhumane, especially like you said, you're being paid. This isn't your family. You are you are paying money to be in this space. There is a baseline, I think, of in a capitalist society, transactional yeah. respect that at least has to be there. Yeah, I like transactional respect. I write it down because I think that's a very good way to just put it in two words, because I think indeed, especially in martial arts or in any space where bodies touch other bodies or are in contact that means that you trust the other person like when i roll with somebody then we say to each other okay we're gonna roll we want to submit each other but we don't want to injure each other so we are trusting the other that even if they come into situations where they can submit and potentially hurt that they won't 
of course, up to me to tap in time so that they don't break my arm or snap my leg off. Mm -hmm. But it's like a two-time thing because for me also sometimes when I realize somebody has some ego and doesn't want to tap and I know it's there, I don't continue, I don't care, I'll just let go. But it's like, it's still like you, you, you give trust, you give your trust, you put your trust into another body. And it starts indeed, as you say, by already how you're treated when you just walk in the door first time. Mm-hmm. There it already starts. Because if you dare already ridiculed somehow, how can you build any meaningful relationship with yourself in that space and with others? That's like really impossible. And that type of culture is directed from top. When top accepts, when mm-hmm. the other lower ranks, so to speak, um, do that, then, you know, as you say, then they already have bad cards to begin with. Mm-hmm. So last, we're going to like another question is like, so when you are out, what did you notice when you would enter a new space with people, a new type of community, whether, I don't know, art or anything else? Did that change how you approach that? It did. Some for the positive and some for the ways that are challenging I'm still working through. I think one of the positive ways was being able to enter into other spaces and kind of breathe and recognize that um, not every space wants to be top down and um, not every space requires your soul, Mm -hmm. that there are people in spaces that will absolutely respect your boundaries and actually maybe won't allow you to not have boundaries. There are spaces that, you know, require you to be your best self in order to be in them. And that's a whole different kind of accountability. I think one of the things that's been more challenging is it has left a residual kind of fear, I'll call it, um, to, to groups. I, I just, it's hard for me at times to join groups, whether that be for working, for even, you know, different mm-hmm. activities or friendship circles. There is a part of me, and I do, I'm, you know, I'm engaged in different things and I have friends and I, I do stuff, but I notice in the body, some of the sensations will still come up of, oh no, I've got to be really aware of this space and who's in it and how these power dynamics are working to a degree that sometimes can take away from the actual enjoyment of the space. And so while I appreciate the kind of sharpening of my discernment, it can be a double-edged sword that depending on the state you're in, that kind of desire to step away can overtake me at times if I feel any inkling of anything going on. And like you're saying, like when you're called into the professor's office, that thought comes up of, oh, no, I did something wrong. I think any time when I'm in a group dynamic and tension arises, there is still a part of me that goes to that place of, oh, no, this person is in, you know, egomaniac. I've got to go. I've got to get out of here. So my own learning has been in part to have processes to kind of slow myself down in the moment. Even having like phrases can be helpful for yourself of maybe you're asked a question that really triggers your nervous system and, and you, you need to say, I can't answer that right now or that mm-hmm. I'll let you know tomorrow or let me think about that. I, I like to say, let me meditate on it and I'll get back to you because it just gives you a little bit of time to calm and sift through the parts that are the leftovers of your trauma and the part that actually is really there in the moment present with you. Um, and often, like you're saying, more often than not, I find that it's not the thing that I thought it was in terms of that initial response. It's either something benign or even if it is an issue, 
it's not a matter of someone attempting to dominate me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will say that when that does arise, because these things happen in life, I am able to see it faster than I have in the past. And because of that, that ability to move through the situation and step away sooner, it's such a reduction in harm that some of that fear starts to dissipate because you don't get to the point where your whole life is wrapped around the thing before you do that. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, if I call this in day one instead of day 365, there's a lot less at stake. Definitely. Like I had um, already some time ago during the COVID time, I started this online yoga arm balancing because I love arm balancing. And I was like, okay, cool. Like, you know, let's sharpen it. And um, they had this Facebook group with moderators and uh, and already real quick, I'm like, they saying some things. I'm like, that sounds toxic and culty as hell. So I kind of even got in touch with the, the head and I just said like, well, I just want to raise my concern because it's new. It's a growing community. It's growing very fast. But I have experience with well, social systems in general. And um, I said, like, I see these red flags. And then I got my answers in terms of like this toxic positivity. You know, everything has to be positive no matter what. Um, You couldn't have real talk because I wasn't necessarily criticizing. I just noticed like, you know, I think it's it's off. It's odd. So I left real quick and I was like, okay, bye. Now it's huge and I still have quite some some friends and some people that are now leaving too because now they also are like, and some like you, they invested a lot in it. They really invested a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of effort and they're like, yeah, you know, so it's, it's, it's really, as you say, like when you, for me, I was like counting my blessings and I'm like, yeah, well, I saw it kind of right at the beginning mm-hmm. before they even were existing for a year and I was like, yeah, I don't need this in my life. And I think the more we can see that, you can take the bits that you need and discard the rest without that you get indeed personally involved and harmed. That's just how you worded it, the involvement and harm. And you spoke earlier about that personal sense of worthiness. And I think something that I'm still learning to cultivate in my life is an understanding not just of my own, but that a belief that human beings, we have an intrinsic value simply in the being, in being born and being on the planet, there is an intrinsic value that is not given to you. Um, And it's the one that you can hone it through life, but it's not, it doesn't require any kind of being made better or cultivation. It's just our intrinsic inherent value as beings. And that that is what stays with you no matter what environment you're in. And so sometimes I think that fear of leaving certain harmful spaces or people can come from this idea that your value was coming from outside of you to begin with. And so there's this really deep fear of, well, if I go, my sense of self, my sense of value stays in that place. It's a normal, unfortunately, a very normal feeling, but it's absolutely untrue. And this is what still in my kind of journey through harm reduction in my own life, especially what I willingly walk into is that very thing because it is so much of what keeps people in cycles of violence, seeing that within myself, seeing it within my family systems growing up, that there was this notion that if you leave this system, you have nothing. And that's exactly what the system wants you to believe in order to stay. And so as scary as it can be, that really kind of shaky first step of stepping out of toxic systems is understanding that 
you leave with every part of your value intact. It comes with you and any space that you move through, it is with you. And it is actually a part of what was wanted by that toxic system in the first place. And so that deep cultivation of an inherent self-worth, again, not just of yourself, but that every human being has is so important in that harm reduction, which I'm finding in my life, just it just makes for like a lighter existence and a more fluid one where what I say to myself is like, basically when I find myself needing to leave a situation and those kind of feelings are creeping up, even if it's not a super harmful, toxic situation, it's just time to go. I say like, my life keeps going and I am what my life is. And so there is this kind of sense of gathering up myself and moving forward, knowing that like, I'm with me. And I know it sounds so corny and so self-help-ish, but it's, it's helped me kind of break ties that need to be broken just a lot faster because there's something that even the most strong-minded and powerful of people are susceptible to when over time you stay inside of toxic mm-hmm. systems. Like you're saying, you're seen as someone who is confident and has boundaries, which I'm sure you are. But the longer you stay in spaces that don't reflect that, the harder it is to remember and then move in that manner within yourself. And so when I find myself having to move in a manner where that is not reflected to me, that's when I know I have to gather up myself, which is my inherent value and worth, and keep moving. That's beautifully said. And I think so helpful for so many people that are listening, because I know there's a pervasive problem, not only in martial arts, but also particularly in martial arts. So I think this will be super helpful. And I like actually this, I am with me, because indeed you kind of make it tangible. It's very simple. When you walk out of the room or walk out situation, it's kind of, for the first part, it's over first. Mm-hmm. Of course, maybe you still need to do other things, but the first safety is established. It's a literal, a physical boundary. So I think that's a very, very good one. And I also like this. Um, let me meditate or think about it, or um, I need a moment. I think... Mm-hmm. often we say yes also to things simply because we get overwhelmed and we don't give this time. And, and I mean, I know not everybody is toxic, but I know that toxic individuals know how that works. And that's why things like do it in public and all that kind of stuff. So you can't really refuse or, or so they want you to think. Um, so indeed, creating pause, creating space for yourself to so that you can make an informed decision is also very important, important because sometimes sometimes people ask me things I've never ever in my life thought about. So, and, and, and even though they expect an answer from me and often they're also very right, I have to deal with that. But first I need some time to think about it, especially when I've never encountered or thought about it before. So that's the very, very last question. What is your favorite quote or something that you would like to share? Hmm. There's two that come to mind. I'm, there's so many more, but the two things that come to mind. One is, I believe it's... Um, Maya Angelou, excuse me, it's a Maya Angelou quote. And she says, trust people the first time they show you who they are. And I think that's an incredibly challenging thing to do, but it points to the instinct inside of yourself that what I know through my life, I, as a child, I thought was judgment and I had been taught not to judge. And so I would get these immediate hits when I would be around people, whether that be about you could feel their sadness or you could feel their anger. And I'd think to myself, don't judge. You don't know. Yet. And I think what that was, was not judgment. It was intuition. And so I think the notion of trusting people when they show you who they are is really about 
that really lightning fast speed of discernment that all human beings have, but we get kind of trained out of to start to learn how to trust it and to take those daily steps to trust it, which is acting in line with it. And sometimes we can be wrong, but having enough grace and space for yourself to be wrong after you trust yourself first, it's okay to be wrong after that. Um, so there's, there's that quote, I think another one, it's so cheesy, but it's Bob Marley and it's who feels it knows it. And not always that all of our emotions and feelings are true to the moment of something, mm-hmm. but like you said, they are intel. They are letting us know something about ourselves in a moment. And I think also when it comes to toxicity and violence, you don't have to be in the worst situation in the world to say that you don't want to experience it. So it can be at the first inkling of feeling it. And that can be enough of your knowing some people need to be, you know, to be crass thrown through a window before they Mm -hmm. say that's enough. Some people need to just feel that energy of negativity coming towards them. And to me, that's the who feels it knows it. And you're allowed to trust that on some level. Yeah, sometimes I also think like sometimes you can know a person before you know about them. Yeah. And that's like this this feel and also this the first quote regarding trust. I mean, like, yeah, if somebody shows who they truly are and say it's a toxic individual, you can trust them that they will be toxic and probably mm-hmm. be harmful to you. And that is, I think, the thing that this quote doesn't mean that you have to trust trust them with your well-being, but you can trust them that they will do as how they show how they are. Exactly. And that, mm-hmm. I think, also creates a lot of space in terms of like, um, because actually with, with the abusive relationship I then left, I, in the end, what gave him kind of like a curveball, I think, but I thanked him for the fact that he couldn't conceal who he was well enough. So I thanked him for that because because of that, I did not invest more of my precious time in him so I can just like now I'm in the husband I have now and I'm very happy with I rather you know invest that in him and in our dog and all that than if I would have been stuck longer and longer in that relationship that was like completely destroying me mm-hmm. so I find those two very very powerful quotes and I thank you very much for your openness and your insight I got really goosebumps like mm. kind of all the time because I, I I could feel it Um, and yeah thank you very much for sharing I'm pretty sure that many of the listeners they will find this extremely helpful thank you so much for having me and just for the work you're doing it's such a very specific segment of life to be talking about and so it's really just um, it's validating to have someone else on such a pointed topic that's so personal to me but not to everybody and so thank you for doing the work you're doing and for continuing to train and finding ways to like still have that part of your life moving forward in a way that feels healthy and opening up that space to other people it's so important thank you so much thank you jen for this insightful and open conversation i had repeatedly goosebumps listening to your story and experiences Breaking cycles of violence is challenging as it is multi-layered and requires the hard inner work. Work not everyone is equipped yet to start and needs serious self-accountability and courage. If you want to reach out to Jen and work with her sonic meditation practice or just connect in general, please find her contact details in the show notes below. This is the final episode of season one of the Rise to Thrive podcast. We will be back in September with an episode about how manga or anime impacts martial artists. Bye for now and take care.
you're about to experience a new way to thrive in martial arts by exploring who you are, what you love and standing up for what you believe in. It's time to rise because this is where we challenge and say no to outdated industry norms and say yes to change so that we create a healthier, happier and thriving martial arts community. I'm your host, Laurine Zuhake. Welcome to the Rise to Thrive podcast.